So Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 to 2, verse 7. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, these things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Thanks, Cameron. Uh, Our text for this morning, the verses we're particularly going to be looking at, are verses 4 and 5. So if you want to have a look at them just uh, again, it says this, But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Uh, As you are aware, last Sunday we we finished off a series uh, looking at Reformation. Uh, Today's a bit of a one-off. This is where we're going for the rest of the year. Uh, Next Sunday is like our uh, every four-month classes pulpit swap. So when all the ministers swap around, uh, so I'll be up in Melbourne. We're not we're not having somebody somebody else random come here. We've actually got Caleb Crosby 
uh, bringing us God's Word next Sunday. That's part of his RTC preaching course. Uh, he needs to preach in the church, and so we're, we're delighted to have him here next Sunday. After that, we're starting off what is basically our last series for the year. Uh, we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 5 to 8, uh, looking at this whole idea of new life in Christ. What does it mean to live a spirit-filled uh, new life free from the law of God? Uh, so that's what we're going to be focusing on between then and the end of the year, and then it's Christmas time and that stuff. And then in January, uh, just as kind of in the planning stage at the moment, uh, we're going to be doing a series throughout January on the Proverbs, on some Proverbs, looking at the book of Proverbs, uh, and we're going to be doing that combined with the Hub. So um, you'll get a few of preachers across both churches over the month of January um, looking at that. So uh, for now, really encourage you to read, if not the whole book of Romans, particularly Romans 5 to 8 in the next couple of weeks as we uh, begin to look at that series. Let's pray, and then we'll get into these verses here. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for your word, the Bible. Uh, we thank you that you speak to us uh, in the past, and you speak to us still today. Thank you that this is your living word, uh, which reaches into our hearts, and it convicts us of sin, and it points us to the grace and the mercy that is ours in Jesus Christ. And Lord God, we're praying that you would do that again today. Uh, through your word and by your Holy Spirit, uh, speak to us, build us, encourage us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder if you've ever had uh, someone uh, say the phrase to you, I've got a bone to pick with you. It's a scary phrase, isn't it? It's actually a very, very old phrase. It's over 500 years old. Uh, it comes from the idea of two uh, dogs fighting over a bone uh, so that they can pick it dry. They can suck all of the meat, all of the marrow out of that bone. It's this idea, I've got an issue with you and we need to sort it out. There's lots of other uh, phrases like that as well, isn't there? Uh, excuse me, uh, I need to have a word with you. That's, that's enough to get me shaking uh, in my boots if I hear that one. Uh, or, um, I've got an issue uh, that I need to bring up with you. <laughs> that line will keep me awake uh, at night. <laughs> uh, or, uh, there are a couple of things that we need to talk about. Uh, as a pastor, I dread, <laughs> I dread hearing that phrase. <laughs> uh, that's not one that I'm going to enjoy. Now, our reaction to phrases like this depends on who issues them, doesn't it? So the, the way that we respond to someone saying that to us depends on who it is who says it to us. And so if my wife, my wife Tracy, she says to me, uh, we need to have a word about something. Oh, let's, just, let's just leave it at that. <laughs> uh, if, somebody, if somebody comes up to me after the service and says to me, uh, I've got an issue uh, that I need to bring up with you. Whew, I'm going to freak out about that one, especially when it's someone with a higher theology degree than me, which is only about half the church uh, as well. Or if my kids hear the phrase, <laughs> we're going to talk about this later, uh, they better be worried <laughs> when we talk about it later. We, we react to that depending on who it is, says those words, says that phrase to us. Uh, 
But what if, what if the Lord Jesus says that to his church? What if the risen, reigning Jesus has an issue to bring up with his church? That's what's happening in these couple of verses, isn't it? Jesus starts that by saying, I have this against you. Now, maybe that's not quite the way we expect Jesus to speak. It's not very PC of him. We expect Jesus to be a lot more gentle with his church, a lot more kind, a lot more compassionate. But think about the way that Jesus was described in those earlier verses, which Cameron read for us. Think about the way in which he's being pictured here. Verse 14, he has eyes like a flame of fire. Verse 15, his voice is like the roar of many waters. Verse 16, out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is a majestic, powerful, glorious, almost terrifying image of Jesus Christ. The one who has conquered sin and death and Satan and now reigns over heaven and earth and who reigns over the church. And that Jesus says, this I have against you. And if that Jesus says those words, then his church better listen. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do two things. We're going to firstly have a look at what Jesus has against his church here in Ephesus. We remember that he is addressing Ephesus, that church specifically. What does he have against them? And as we're doing that, we're going to ask the question, could he, might he, should he have that against the church at South Barwon as well? And then secondly, we're going to have a look at the remedy or the answer that he gives the church. Because the gospel is not just bad news and what you're doing wrong. The gospel is good news and hope and life in Jesus' name. So let's start then with what Jesus has against his church. What is so important that Jesus actually has to take issue with his church and can't just let it slide on by? Well, it's there in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Something has changed for the church in Ephesus. Something has changed in the love department. Something they had at the beginning, they had when they started, and they don't have while Jesus is addressing them now. And it's love. Now, we've got to ask the question, what exactly does he mean by love? What is this love that they had at first? Is it love for God? Is it love for his word? Is it love for lost people? Is it love for each other? Well, we, we need to do a lot of exploring, and, and we can do that in God's word. We can actually ask, and we can see what they had at first. We can start by having a look at when the church was founded, when it was planted in Acts chapter 18 and 19. 
You don't need to necessarily turn that. I'll just read a couple of verses out of there. That planting was really in a two-stage process. First of all, they were evangelized in Acts chapter 18 by a guy named Apollos. Apollos was a passionate evangelist who didn't actually know the full story of the gospel when he evangelized them. He knew about Jesus and he knew about the baptism of John, but he didn't know about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul comes along and he teaches Apollos about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does in his life. And then Paul comes and preaches and those first believers who were converted under Apollos then received the Holy Spirit for through the ministry of Paul. There are 12 of them to start with, but then that, but then that church grows incredibly. This comes at the end of chapter 10, 19, verse 10. This continued, this Paul's preaching continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Paul's ministry in Ephesus goes well beyond. So people are converted and evangelists and missionaries and church planters go out from there all over Asia. And so other churches get planted and more people get to hear about Jesus. And at verse 20, it says, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is a powerful planting of, of a church in Ephesus. But it's not an easy one. There is opposition the whole way. First of all, it comes from the Jewish synagogue. Then it comes from a group of Jewish exorcists who even knew that such a thing existed. And then finally, it comes from the wider population in Ephesus who worship at the local temple. And all of these things mean that Paul has to flee, has to move on because the persecution is getting too much for him. Now, we don't actually read a lot about love in that planting. But we can assume that part of the word of God prevailing is that they were growing in love. Love for God, love for his word, love for each other, and love for the lost. Well, next we're going to have a look at the book of Ephesus. And if you want to, you can flick open there at a letter that Paul writes the church soon after he had to leave it. The book of, the book of Ephesians. Here, we see a lot more about love. But not firstly their love, but God's love for them in Christ. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 4, at the very end of it. It says this, In love, he, that's God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, because of the great love with which he loved us. Chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Paul's prayer for them, that they might comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How, was, how did this church begin? This church began in the love of God for them in Christ. God predestined them in love from the creation of the earth. God poured out his love and his mercy on sinful rebels that were the Ephesian church. Paul's prayer for them is that they know that love in increasing measure. And what's happening in the Ephesian church then 
Well, they are growing in love that flows from God's love for them. Have a look there for a moment at uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And this kind of sums it up. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Chapter verse 25, when it talks to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What is this, what is this love that they have abandoned? They have moved away from the foundation of God's love for them in Jesus. They have grown up knowing, swimming in, wallowing in God's love for them in Christ, which has flowed out into their love for each other. But now they have abandoned that first love. Have a look at verses 2 and 3, and it helps give us a bit of a picture of what this church is like. Look, look at what he commends them for. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. He says, I, I see that you test those who call themselves apostles, but are not. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. What do we have in, in, this, in, in Ephesus? We have a dutiful church. We we have a church that is doing all of the right things. But it has lost the foundation of love. It has lost its source of new life and love. It is no longer founded in God's love for them. In Jesus. It's a little bit like a loveless marriage. It's dutiful. It's obedient. It's hanging in there for the kids. But it's lost the love that founded it all together. Except with one big difference. One partner still loves and loves incredibly. Chapter 1, verse 4, a very book of Revelation. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. There are probably times when all of us, all of us go through this. We might go through it in our marriages, and that's sad but we go through this as followers of Jesus. We keep plugging away. We keep dutifully serving. We keep doing all the things that we know are expected of us. But we don't have love. Times when Jesus could say to us, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. 
This is, of course, the first of seven letters uh, to seven different churches that Jesus asked John to write down. Uh, Seven letters to seven real uh, historical churches, Uh, but more broadly than that, speak of seven types of churches that we might still find in the world today. A little while ago, a couple, a few, couple of months ago, I was reading through these letters with, uh, with another uh, person. And I asked the question, uh, out of all of these seven churches, uh, which one do you think South Barwon is most like? For me, it's probably this church. Dutiful obedient, slugging away, concerned about truth and error, concerned that we've, we've got it right theologically, we understand God's word. But could Jesus say to South Bowen, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, is it such a big deal? I mean, a loveless marriage is better than a divorce, right? Surely that's, that, that's better for the kids. Does it really matter if we move from that foundation? Well, we've got to say yes, don't we? The end of verse 5, look at, what, look at what Jesus says. If you don't change, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. If things don't things don't change, you'll cease to be a church. Now, why, why is that? Because if we move, we move from the foundation of God's love for us in Jesus, very easily and very quickly, the church becomes a place of works righteousness. That we work so that God might love us. Rather than we serve because of God's great love for us. History is littered with churches whose lampstands have been removed. For a whole lot of reasons. But one of them is because they have abandoned the love they had at first. Doesn't mean that Jesus has failed. He will put another lampstand in its place. He will raise up more and more churches as he has been doing for 2,000 years. But it is a warning to take what Jesus says seriously. Are we willing to listen to what Jesus says to the church? Are we hearing his warning that if we abandon that love, that lampstand will no longer be around? It may take five years. It might take 50 years. It might take 100 years. But if things don't change, Jesus will change it.
Well, that's what he has against the church. But next we want to have a look at what does he offer then as a remedy? How does he, how does he call the church in Ephesus and other churches who look like the Ephesian church to respond? The gospel doesn't just tell us what we've done wrong. It does do that. We looked at 2 Timothy 3, 16. It rebukes us. It corrects us. It reproofs us. It, it shows us where there is error. But it also encourages us. It also is a word that gives life. So, so what is Jesus doing here? Well, three things I want to suggest he calls the church to do. And all of them begin with R so that we can remember them a lot more easily. And the first one is there in verse 5, and it says, Remember. Remember. Remember there from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like beforehand. Remember where you were before. Remember how good it was. Now, we have to be careful with this one because there is a way of reading this which actually doesn't sound right and actually works against us. One way we could read this is say, oh, remember how loving you were before. Remember, remember all of the acts of love which you did before. What happens when we do that? Well, that produces guilt, doesn't it? Oh, that's how good we were before. This is how awful we are now. Ah, I feel guilt. I've got to work harder. What does that produce? That produces more faithful obedience without love. So that is not what Jesus is calling the church to do. What is he calling us to remember? He's calling us to remember what it was like to be passionate about the love of God in Christ. Remember your foundation. Remember how you were formed. Remember the tremendous love of God in Christ shown to us in his death, burial, and resurrection. Remember what it was like to have your hearts excited and passionate about just how much God loved you. Remember what it was like when you would do anything because you were being motivated by God's love for you in Jesus. Sometimes when our marriages are in a tough place, we remember, don't we? We remember what it was like beforehand. We remember what it was when we first got together, or when we were first engaged, or when we were first married. And we remember how we would do anything for each other because of that love that we felt. What is Jesus saying to his church? Remember those days when you feasted on and swum in and you swallowed up my love for you on the cross. This, this is the foundation on which a church stands. This is the only, only motive that enables a church to keep moving forward and growing and growing in faith and in love and obedience. Not guilt. Guilt is an easy motivator, but it's an awful one. It does not last. Not self-interest. Not you will feel better for it. Again, it's an easy motivator, but it doesn't last. Not so that you will be more attractive like the church down the road. That's an easy motivator as well, but it, 
It doesn't take the distance. The only motivator that will work throughout time and on and on and on is knowing God's love for us in Christ. So if, if your life looks like, or should I say, when, when our life looks like the Ephesian church, when it's dutiful, obedient, faithful, but lacking in love, this is where we need to start, and this is where we need to stay. Living in God's love for us in Christ. This is, this is where we need to go back to in his word. Being reminded of the great love that God has for his people. This is what we need to remind each other of as we, we speak to each other and we encourage each other. This is what we need to hear as God's word is explained. Of his great, tremendous, awesome love for us in Jesus. This is what we need to remember over and over again. This is what we need to have as our foundation as a church at South Bowen. This is a foundation that we cannot move from. We will never graduate, never graduate from knowing the love of God for us in Christ. This is what we need to sing about to one another reminding each other of the goodness and the greatness and the graciousness of God. This is what we need to study together in His Word when we meet together in groups or we do it one-on-one, highlighting the love for us that God has in Jesus. Even when we, even when we confess sin, we will do it because it reminds us how loving God is to forgive us in Jesus. Even when we call each, call each other to obedience, we will do it out of the foundation of God's love for us in Jesus. One, remember. Two, he says, repent. Remember, the, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, he says. Now, uh, we hear this word a lot in, uh, in Christian churchy circles. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, Jesus preached it uh, during his earthly time. He said, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Uh, Peter preached it on the day of Pentecost when people heard the good news of Jesus. They said, what should we do to be saved? He said, repent, believe, and be baptized. Uh, so what does it mean? Often when we think of it, we turn, think of it in terms of initial faith, coming to faith in Jesus. We repent of our sins. So we repent of a life that has lived away from God, a life that's lived in rebellion, a life that's walking away from God, and we believe, so we turn around and we believe in Jesus. We trust in him for our salvation, for our forgiveness, for our new life. And it's true. Repentance happens at the start of our faith. But repentance is part of our ongoing walk of following Jesus. Repentance is the daily activity of a believer and of a church in letting go of sin, letting go of rebellion, and clinging to Jesus. Part of that is confession. Part of it is confessing 
our sinfulness, our fallenness, and our brokenness. And we will, we will do that in a little while. We will, we will pray a prayer of confession. When we, when we admit before God our lack, of, our lack of foundation of his love for us in Christ. But that is, that is a part of the Christian life day by day. As we confess our sin to God in the full knowledge that he has forgiven us in Jesus. Knowing that he has already washed us clean. And it's to be part of our church life together as well. That's a part of it. That's con- confession. But another part of it is letting go. Letting go of our alternative loves. Our alternative gods. So that we might cling more fully to Christ. There is a reason... There is a reason why we move from the foundation of God's love for us in Christ. There is something there that our hearts love more. What is it? It's the thought that God loves us because we are worthy. It's a love of ourselves that wants to see ourselves as worthy of that love. But in Jesus, in Jesus, we can let go of that false hope, that false idol, that false love. Because in Jesus, we experience unconditional love and acceptance. A love for sinners. A love for rebels. Remember, he says, repent Turn from it. Let go of it. And cling to the love that you have in Christ. And thirdly and finally, he calls the church to return. Now, this is the R that I made up because it fits well. But I think you can see it's justified. Repent and do the works you did at first. Return to the works that you had when you started. Works done from love, motivated by love. Works for love, works that build love in the church. It means that we will have humility like Jesus Christ. Humility which considers others before ourselves. Humility which sees us as undeserving recipients of grace and love and now humble servants of Jesus Christ and of one another. It means that we will have relationships with each other that look like the relationship that Jesus has with us. Sacrificing, serving, giving, offering unconditional love and acceptance for one another. It it means... It means that we will love lost people because Jesus loved lost people. It means that we will build friendships, relationships. We will show care and love to people who don't know Jesus yet because that's what he has done for us.
It means loving the stranger. The person who walks in those doors on a Sunday who we have not met before. Looking to see who they might be and going out of our way to welcome them and enfold them. It'll mean loving the strange. Those that are more difficult and challenging to love. Those who are different. Those who won't necessarily love us back. It'll mean loving the person who's hurt us. Offering them forgiveness and reconciliation just like Jesus has done that for us. It'll mean loving children and elderly people and single people and sick people and struggling people and everybody that God puts across our path. We will return to the works done from love, out of love, and for love. For Christ and for his people. Let's pray together, shall we?